When I was in seminary, it was required that I take preaching class. I actually took preaching two different times, took an intro to preaching and then um, another preaching class after that. And the more advanced class that I took was taught by a woman named Dr. Teresa Fry. And I can remember one day in class, she was standing at the front and she said, there are three high holy days on the Christian calendar. Tell me what they are. Christmas, Easter, I, I guessed Pentecost, and wrong, Mother's Day, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, three high holy days. So for Easter this morning, we're going to talk about the story of Lazarus. That doesn't really make much sense. <laughs> I can remember, though, when my youngest was three months old. I have three children, and when he was three months old, I was exhausted, wiped out by the time he was three months old. And a friend of mine showed up at my front door. She's about 10 years older than I am. She showed up at my front door with her husband, and she said, give me that baby. I'm spending the night. (laughs) And so I wrapped myself up in blankets, and I went into my tomb for about 10 hours. Yeah, uh, I think mothers know what it is to be worn out, so tired that you almost feel dead, right? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Lazarus um, and John's gospel. John's gospel has a prologue. The very first chapter of John's gospel, there's a prologue, and that prologue sets us up to uh, take in the next 10 chapters of John. It sets us up to hear about Jesus's public ministry. And you probably know this prologue. I'm gonna read uh, the first five verses for you. We're gonna put it up, up, up on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So the prologue goes on from there, but it sets us up to appreciate Jesus' public ministry because it tells us things like he is the true light, he is the word made flesh, no one has seen the Father, but the Son has made him known. Now, chapter 11 of John's gospel is another preview of what's to come. It's another prologue. It is the prologue of the second half of the book. And the story of Lazarus prepares us to receive the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. It takes place in Bethany, which is just two miles outside of Jerusalem, at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So we are going to read from chapter 11, beginning with verse 32 and going through 44, and I'm going to ask you to stand and read with me. Let's read it together. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. This is the story of God for the people of God. Would you say with me? Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Two different people this week spoke to me about God's plan. One was in a hospital gown wondering how a series of unfortunate events in the family could be a part of God's plan. The other was telling me about a tragic death and how many well-meaning Christians greeted the family after the funeral with the words, this is all part of the Lord's plan. I don't know about you, but I tend to want to make excuses, say things like, well, God's not much of a planner. He's more like a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of guy. Or maybe he forgot. Maybe God just forgot. You know, he has a lot going on, so many meetings and projects. He's busy. You understand. But I don't know that those things are very helpful or reassuring to people. I suppose that when we talk about God's plan We are trying, we're attempting to instill hope. We're trying to get people to be patient, to wait for God to act. It'll all be okay. It'll be fixed. The pain will be gone if we can just get Jesus to show up here in the midst of your pain. Now how can we manipulate the situation to get Jesus to show up? When Lazarus is sick... His sisters send for Jesus, saying, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And Jesus doesn't leave immediately. He waits two days before beginning the journey back to Judea. When he arrives on the scene, Lazarus is already dead. Dead, dead. Four days dead. The belief at the time was that a person's shade hovered over their grave for three days before being consigned to Sheol. And so four days dead is really dead. Four days dead is dead, dead, beginning to decompose, stink, kind of dead. In the text that we read, twice we hear this thought. Jesus, if you'd only been here. Jesus, if you'd been here, This man would not have died. Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says it. The mourners say it who are standing in the crowd. And earlier in the story, Martha also says it. Three times people say to Jesus, if you'd been here, this would be fixed. If you'd been here, this would not have happened. If you'd been here early enough, you could have prevented this terrible thing from happening. I think I've prayed that before. I've definitely prayed, God, where are you? I've prayed it with my head hung low and my shoulders weighed down by the actions of others. 
I've prayed it when the circumstances around me look like they're out of control. I've prayed it on behalf of other people when I'm invited into tragedy. Lord, if you'd only been here, where are you? It's true, I do believe that God has the power to prevent devastation, but I don't think that disaster happens because the Lord just needs to work smarter or harder or show up earlier. Good people suffer, disciples are martyred, and tragedy strikes. And I think this story is a call to look really closely, to look really closely for a response that's better than an excuse or a platitude. There's a response in this story to heartbreak. It's Jesus's response, and it is the response of compassion. It's the first response that Jesus has when he goes to Lazarus's tomb. Mary is weeping. The people around her are weeping. And then we get that verse, verse number 35, that we all know it's just two words. You have it memorized. Jesus wept. You know it. Yeah, yeah. The words around the verse, Jesus wept, are translated, he was greatly disturbed. He was deeply moved. And those words tell us that Jesus isn't just tearing up when he's weeping. It's not just, oh, Jesus, do you have something in your eye? It's not that kind of crying. Those words tell us that Jesus is wailing, that this is the kind of crying that has some anger in it, that causes the people who are there on the scene to observe. Look how he loved him. He really loved Lazarus. Duke theology professor Kate Bowler has written a new book, and it is her own story. It's her own story of her diagnosis with stage four colon cancer at age 35. When she was first diagnosed, doctors told her that she just had a month or two to live. And so when she's writing about that time after her diagnosis, she says that her house was packed to the ceiling with her family Buzzing with the exhausted energy of people trying to save the world by doing laundry and making chicken stock. To escape the frenzy of her house, she says she would often sit on her back porch, wrapped in blankets. When she was sitting on her back porch, her friend Ray came over, and he didn't come through the house to go through the chaos of the home. Instead, He held a bottle of expensive wine over the back fence, and then he popped his head over the back fence. He sat down at the table. He poured a glass of wine for her, the girl who shouldn't be drinking anything but water. And then he said to her these words. He said, I am so sorry that this is happening. This is absolutely terrible. And she writes that it was really strange but also wonderful to hear somebody speak the truth of her situation out loud. In a later conversation, Ray would ask her if she was okay, and she would respond, mostly I'm okay, except for about 10 minutes every day. (laughs) And she said that those words would scare most people off. They would run away. 
But Ray instead asked her this question. What does it look like, those 10 minutes? Describe for me what those 10 minutes look like when you're not okay. I admire Kate's friend Ray because he was willing to sit with her in her pain. He doesn't try to fix it. He doesn't deny it. Instead, he takes the time to be a part of her story and helps her say exactly what it is that hurts so much. He has compassion. Alexander Shia teaches that in John's gospel, Jesus is never less than a divine presence. Jesus initiates everything. He bestows all that is good. Jesus is in full control. He is unaffected by the requests of other people in this gospel, except in chapter 11. Except in chapter 11, where his heart is open in the face of genuine loss. It's in this chapter that Jesus grieves, that his heart breaks. As much as I'm into fixing, this story tells me that God doesn't have much interest in that activity. We talk about bringing in the kingdom and restoring the garden. The thing is, it's just not a quick fix. There certainly is not one recipe that fits all situations. There's not one platitude that works in every tragedy and every disaster or every situation. There is, I've come to notice, a shift that's happening in me. And it's slowly, but I see it happening. I used to walk into hospital rooms and family meetings with a cape. Well, it was imaginary. It was an imaginary cape. (laughs) Pretending to be super pastor. Anxious to take away the pain and to make things perfect. And to make sure that people were feeling better when I left. But I can now see that the strength is not in the hero, but the strength is in the witness. The witness who is courageous enough to walk into devastation and say, tell me about it. I don't know what took me so long. I was trained as a Stephen minister about 20 years ago, and that's exactly what Stephen ministers do. Stephen ministers come along other side come alongside people who are in pain. That's what they do. And I'm really glad that they've gone to the sanctuary because now I'm going to tell a story that would make a Stephen minister cringe. (laughs) Here's the story. (laughs) When I was in my 20s, I had a a friend who was diagnosed, a friend from college, so she was in her 20s also, who was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she died in her 20s. Two weeks before her death, a mutual friend of ours sat at her bedside and said to her, I want you to believe. I want you to believe in Jesus because I don't want you to go to hell. And our friend responded, I already am in hell. It's my experience that our attempts to fix pain, while they're well-intentioned, often brush over or past the truth that needs to be tended to. These attempts don't gain much traction. They don't do anything. 
for the sake of the kingdom. I don't know. They might work against it. We might do some damage, make the pain greater. The call for those who follow Christ, I believe, is compassion. Acknowledging and feeling the pain of other people. And this happens in verse 34, right before the verse that we've all memorized. Jesus wept. It happens in verse 34. There's this invitation, this invitation that people give to Jesus. The invitation that the mourners speak. They say, come and see. Come and see. Come and see where we placed the body. Come and see where those who have suffered a loss stand. Come and stand here too. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's what he does. It's from that place, that place of come and see, that Jesus calls for the stone to be removed, to which Martha responds, you think it's bad now? It's about to really stink here. Because the people who surround that tomb would never have imagined, they never would have dreamt that a guy who is four days dead would walk out of the tomb. They never had, would have imagined that that's what would happen in that situation, that that's what the Messiah could do. You, that wouldn't happen when you've got somebody that's four days dead, maybe two days dead, but not once the tomb is sealed, not four days dead. So I want you to hear this morning this prayer of come and see, because I believe it's a powerful prayer. Come and see. Holy Spirit, come and pick through the situation with me. Come and pick through the devastation with me. Let's see what we find. Let's see what you do. Come and see. There was this one meeting that I had a couple of years ago with my spiritual director where I pretty much just spilled my guts to her. We were in her church library in Austin and so essentially, I just emptied the pockets of my soul out on the table before her in the library. And my expectation was that she would turn and look at me and say, Ew, that's bad. Maybe you shouldn't be in ministry. <laughs> but that's not what she did. Her response instead was, This is good. This is good. Now we can get somewhere. Come and see. I think that it just might be one of the best-kept secretive prayers. It's a three-word prayer, come and see. And it's not the only time that this phrase is mentioned in John's gospel, come and see. It's mentioned in chapter 1. In chapter 1 of John's gospel, Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see this rabbi that I'm following. And then it's mentioned again, the phrase, come and see, in chapter 21 of John's gospel. The disciples are out on the water. Jesus is on the beach, the resurrected Christ, and he says to them, come and see. Come and eat some breakfast. We don't know much about what happens to Lazarus. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, no one asks Lazarus what it was like to walk out of the tomb. Lazarus doesn't preach. He doesn't heal the sick. He doesn't go on to become the most enthusiastic disciple. That would be the logical place. Lazarus just practically disappears. 
We do see him again in chapter 12. In the next chapter, Mary will anoint Jesus' feet with her hair, and John tells us that Lazarus is reclined at the table. He's reclined at the table with Jesus, but that's all we get. He's mute. He says nothing. Well, maybe it's because this story of Lazarus really isn't about Lazarus at all. But instead, it's about Jesus. This story of Lazarus is about Jesus and the promise of the resurrection. Resurrection is not a promise to fix what ails you. It is not a promise to fix what ails me. It's not the Lord doing what he would have done if he had gotten there earlier. Resurrection is instead a promise to compassionately get in the middle of what ails you and bring new life. Resurrection is the promise to get in the middle of it and bring new life. And it's always going to be something that we'd never expect. So this week, next week, in the weeks to come, pray that prayer. Come and see. Lord, come and see.